I really enjoy, I really enjoy our times of worship through music. Music's important to me. Probably not surprising, you know, I, I play the drums, and, and you can argue whether or not that's a part of music. I think it's very musical. And when it, when it comes to worshiping, I find that music is such a good way into, to enter into God's presence and to give Him glory. It's something important. And I was reminded of it even this morning as we sang God's praises together. And I would say, too, if you've ever noticed the way that songs are put together, almost every song that we sing, which is not a hymn, almost every one of these choruses or contemporary songs we sing has a bridge. And these bridges are, 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 are related to the rest of the song, but they also offer something that is unique or different. So yes, we'll sing a verse, then we'll sing a chorus, we'll do that a few times, and then we get to this bridge or this interlude, or sometimes it has a, a, guitar, a guitar solo that, that Tim Dewitt can just do you know, way up here on stage and just and shred, you know? But no matter what way it looks, there is this interlude that is related but different to the rest of the song. And as we've been going through the book of Revelation, we know that it is written and uses different literary devices. And one thing that's happened in in Revelation 10 and 11 is that we have two unique visions that happen during the overall vision of the seven trumpets. And these unique visions are kind of like a bridge. They are related to the rest of the trumpets, but they offer something unique or different. It's a similar, similar literary device to what we saw during the seven seals. And this interlude happens between the sixth trumpet and then the seventh and final trumpet. So this is telling us what happens at the end of the sixth trumpet before the final trumpet, which brings us to the very, very end. And in Revelation 10 and 11, these visions are unique, but they are still related to the rest of the song, the story and the message that the trumpets are trying to tell us. So together this morning, we are going to read these visions one at a time, and then we're going to go through the different symbols and parts of the vision that are given to us, and we are going to do our best to understand what they might represent. And then finally, we're going to circle around and say, if we, if we can believe these symbols to ha- hold this meaning, what does it mean for us today? Those are the three things we're going to do together. And before we do so, I want to invite you to pray with me one more time as we ask God's blessing on our study. Let's pray together. Father God, we we know that your whole entire word is is inspired. It's God-breathed, breathed out by you. It is life-giving, and revelation is no different. God, as always, we want to ask for your spirit to guide us into the truth that you would have. We pray that that you would be the voice behind these words, that you would give us understanding and humility to not only hear them, but to obey them as we've been commanded at the beginning of revelation. God, in all these things, this is another act of worship of you. May you be glorified in what we do here. We pray this in your name. Amen. So what are these two interlude visions? The first one in Revelation 10 is that of the angel and the little scroll. So you can open your Bibles to Revelation 10. I will read the whole chapter for you, and then we'll go through some of what John sees and try to make sense of it all. John says, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded, and when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, 
earth and what is in it and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet called to be sounded by the trumpet called to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the land and the sea. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll, and he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. So no big deal, pretty normal stuff, just an angel descending from heaven and John eating a scroll. That should be pretty obvious what's going on, right? Well, let's work our way through some of these different visions and symbols and see if we can allow Revelation to have its own voice. And as we go through Revelation 10 and 11, I'm going to remind us of some of the ground rules we set up at the beginning. And I think these will help be, still be helpful guides for us. Now, the first thing we encounter, or John encounters, and now we read, is this mighty angel. And this mighty angel comes from the very presence of God. That's why he is mighty. And we know this because of the way that he's described. Look at all these different things that, that John sees. He sees this angel wrapped in a cloud. And throughout all of Scripture, whether it's been the cloud of God's presence coming down on Mount Sinai or filling the tabernacle or the temple or the presence of God as a cloud bearing Jesus up to heaven, always, always cloud has meant the presence of God. This angel also has a face like the sun, which reminds us of the way that Moses would have looked after he encountered the presence of God on Mount Sinai or in the tabernacle, or how Jesus looked during that transfiguration on his mountaintop experience. Have a face like the sun when you come from the very presence of God. And then this angel has legs that are like pillars of fire, which again brings us back to the Exodus. And a pillar of fire was how God's presence led the people of Israel during their time in the wilderness. So three very specific images that let us know this angel, this mighty angel, comes from the very presence of God. And he comes from the presence of God now down to creation. This angel comes with a rainbow around its head. Could be a halo or a type of crown. And yet again, when we, when we encounter rainbow, it doesn't happen very often in Scripture, but it always points to the same thing, that same sign our symbol of the covenant that God made with Noah, that never again would he destroy all of humankind, all of creation by a flood. So creation is brought into focus when we see the symbol of the rainbow. And that becomes even further clear when this angel descends and puts one foot on sea and one foot on land, meaning he has come to all of creation, all the sea and all the creatures that are in it, all the land and all the creatures that are in it, So this angel, through all of this imagery, has come from the presence of God down to creation, and he holds and brings with him a little scroll. This is a message from God to creation. But what is this scroll? What is this message? There are a lot of open and unanswered questions here. I would say that we can be very certain that this is not the same scroll that Jesus has been unsealing during the seven seals. Uh, That scroll was not a little scroll. It was big. It was full on the back and the front, and it required Jesus and Christ alone to be worthy to unseal the scroll. We get none of that same image here. It is a little scroll. It's described very differently. This could be uh, a symbol for the book of Revelation. 
It could be that, that John has been given this message or this revelation and it's symbolized in this scroll and now he's given this message to pass on to others. That could be a possible explanation. But what we do know for sure, given all the other evidence we've gone over, is that the scroll is a message from God to all of creation. And what that message might be, I think, is going to become more clear when we study Revelation in just a few minutes' time. So for now, hopefully, we're going to be satisfied that this angel is bringing a message from God and his very presence down to all of creation, and John plays a part in it. John also encounters a mystery right in the middle of of what is happening with the angel and the scroll. John hears something from heaven. He hears the seven thunders say something. All right, everyone been keeping score at home. What does the number seven represent? Completion, perfection. What has thunder always represented throughout all of uh, Revelation? The presence of God. So the throne has thunder, and when God judges, there's thunder. And so complete, perfect thunder is the voice of God. John hears something from the Lord Almighty himself, and it was probably something quite spectacular and important, and he, he wants to write it down, and then, and then he hears another voice from heaven saying, stop, <laughs> you're not supposed to write this one down. Man, what I wouldn't give to know what the seven thunders said in this moment. And it reminds us of one of our ground rules that, that oftentimes in Revelation, some questions go unanswered. There is always going to be an air of mystery. Often it can be because we are just not sure or certain what Revelation is trying to say because we are far removed from the context that it was written. But other times, like this, it is left open-ended. It's a, it's a mystery that's commanded. We are not supposed to know what was said. But we do know that the Lord spoke. Hopefully, we are all okay with this being left unanswered because that is the only option that we're given. John seals up this word of God, but he's still given the little scroll. And he does what anyone does when he has a good book to read. He eats it. <laughs> he's told to eat it, but it still is a really weird thing. The angel comes and, um, and swears by the Lord Almighty that the seventh trumpet is going to be the end. He says that there is no more delay. Remember that the six trumpets were God uh, enacting this partial judgment all throughout the stage of human history, but the seventh trumpet is the end because we know that, that God is praised as the Lord who, who was and who is, but he's no longer the Lord who is coming because he's arrived. The seventh trumpet is the end. And so now the angel is declaring in between number six and number seven that there's no more delay. The end is nigh when the seventh trumpet is sounded. And that no more delay now shows that God is answering the prayers of the martyrs in Revelation 5, who cry out to God and say, how long until you give us vengeance? How long until you come again? How long until your kingdom arrives in its fullness? And now the angel says to John, no more delay. The time is now. And John is given this little scroll and he's commanded to eat it. And again, we need to think symbolically. We can get too caught up in this. So John is having a vision, and in his vision, he eats a scroll. But what is truly happening? Well, John is taking a direct message from God. He's taking the word of God, and he's internalizing it. He's taking a message from God, and he is internalizing it. This is what happens in Jeremiah 15, verse 16, where Jeremiah says, your words were found, O God, and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. 
So when Jeremiah the prophet says that he ate the words of God, was he also munching on scrolls? No. But he delighted, as as Taylor said, he delighted in the Lord. He delighted in God's word. It was like honey on his lips. He is taking that with delight. He is internalizing this message. He is making it a very part of his heart and soul. That is what is happening in Jeremiah. That is what is happening in John's vision. He's doing this not just to keep God's word close to his heart, but also to share it far and wide. There is a purpose that John eats the scroll, takes God's word and holds it so close. And that's given again in the very final verse we read. John was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and language and kings. So John has been given this message from the presence of God to give to all creation. He is taking it in so that he can send it back out. That is the picture of Revelation chapter 10. We need to keep this in mind because it helps us understand more about Revelation 11 and again about the rest of the trumpets because these visions are unique, but they are certainly related, like a bridge or an interlude in a song. Good. Hopefully, that's clear as mud. Let's go to the next vision, the two witnesses in Revelation 11. And I'm not going to lie, church, in lots of the commentaries that I read over this week, uh, they often shared one thing in common. They said that Revelation 11 is one of the hardest or most difficult places of Revelation to interpret. But don't worry, I've got it all sorted out, so let's go. <laughs> no worries. I was not intimidated. I was like, no big deal. Then, John says, I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses And they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees. These, meaning the witnesses, are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Oh, pretty good for them. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt where the Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. And they stood up on their feet and a great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to the heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in their earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. The day of the Lord, the final trumpet, the end, or the very, very beginning. What? can we do to make sense of the two witnesses? Well, it begins with this picture. And for the first time in John's vision, not the first time, I guess he just ate the scroll. He's now an active participant in what's going on. 
he's given this measuring rod and he's told to go measure the temple. Measure the temple. And, and this is not the first time that we've seen a prophet do this kind of thing. As has been the case many times, we need to go back to the prophet Zechariah. In Zechariah 2, we see that God asks him to do much the same thing in a vision that he has. I'll read from you Zechariah 2, verse 1 to 5. He says, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. And then I said, where are you going? And he said to me to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. So again, when we see this image of, of something that happens from another place in Scripture, we are reminded of our ground rule. We are using the rest of Scripture to help us properly interpret Revelation. And there is no mistake that this vision God gives to John is related to the one that happened in Zechariah. And what is happening in Zechariah? That the measuring of Jerusalem is, is, is a form of protection. That this measurement then would come with this promise that God would be in the midst of Jerusalem and God would be this protective wall of fire around the city. And so what does this mean? This means that, that God is doing the same thing for the temple. This is about the promise of being in the midst of the temple. This is the promise of being a hedge of protection. And the question becomes, what temple is John referring to in the book of Revelation? I think it's pretty clear that this is not a reference to the physical temple. Why is that? Well, all the way back in our first study, we said that it is, is likely that this book was written in A.D. early 90s. And was the physical temple around in A.D. 90? No, it was not. It was destroyed in A.D. 70. And even if we were to adopt an earlier authorship of Revelation in the mid-A.D. 60s, then if we were talking about the physical temple, all of this hope would have been torn down in A.D. 70 when that came to pass. So there is good reason to believe that the first hearers of this word would not have understood this to mean the physical temple in the physical Jerusalem. What would it mean instead? And again, it reminds us of the ground rule. Our best interpretation of Revelation will be the one that makes sense to those with whom this letter was addressed. And the physical temple would not have made sense. What would have made better sense? Well, how was the temple treated in the rest of the New Testament? There is a major theme. The temple comes up over and over again, and the temple is the people of God. 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? 1 Corinthians 6.19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Or 2 Corinthians 6.16, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. God is in their midst and protecting the temple. 1 Peter 2.5, you yourselves are like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house a temple to be a royal priesthood. So if the picture we're given at the beginning of Revelation 11 is supposed to be a promise of God to be in the middle of his temple and a protecting wall of fire around his temple, this is a, in line with all that we've heard in the rest of Revelation, that God is in the midst of his people and that God has sealed his people and is looking out for and protecting his people. 
This is another image and another symbol of so much of what we have already learned to be true. No surprises here. Therefore, measuring the temple means that God is in our midst and we are protected. And it's consistent with everything that's happened through the rest of the story of the six trumpets up to this point. But it is only the inner sanctum of the temple that's protected, not the outer courts. Instead, these, this part of this temple is given over to the nations to trample and to, to overcome and to vi- do violence to for 42 months. 42 months. Uh, a sum, a length of time that is also described, same length of time as 1,260 days, which is also the same length of time as three and a half years. And through a lot of apocalyptic literature and then the prophecy in the Old Testament, even the story of the Old Testament, the number 42, 42 months, or 1,260, or three and a half years, comes up over and over and over again. And as Dr. Gerald Johnson would say, he says, when we encounter a number in Revelation, we have to remember it's a symbol, not a statistic. It's a symbol, not a statistic. We're not looking at 1,260 literal days. We're trying to understand what does that time frame point to? What greater truth is John referring to in this vision? Well, 42 months or 1260 days, or three and a half years, is found in Daniel 7, 25, and later in Daniel 12, 7. And in those passages, it's described as a a time, and a time again, and then a time and a half, or a year, and a year, and a year and a half, three and a half years. It also happens to be the amount of time that it did not rain while Elijah called the nations to repentance, we read that in James 5.17. If you want to dig even deeper, then, then 42 was the number of stages of Israel wandering in the wilderness. It was the number of generations recorded in Matthew's genealogy from, from, the, from the time of the beginning till Jesus Christ. 42 is also the answer to the life, the universe, and everything. Am I the, am I the only one who gets that joke? That was a joke. That's a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy joke. Thanks, Tim, for the pity clap. So disregard that one. We're thinking biblically. This is a number that comes up over and over and over and over again. And it always refers to a time of hardship and trouble for God's people. It always refers to a time of hardship or trouble or waiting for God's people. And so in the context then of Revelation 11, this time stands for the whole time that the new temple, the people of God, the saints, are under pressure in this clash of kingdoms between the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God of God. It's also the same time frame when we peek ahead to Revelation 12 that the dragon pursues the Messiah that is born. So then this becomes a symbol, uh, symbolic of the entire time between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Christ. The time that the Messiah is born to the seventh and final trumpet when he comes again to usher in the end of all things. It is a time that John has already described as the great trouble of which he is a partner. So whatever you want to describe it, this is the time of great trouble. It is a time of testing, a time in which the outer courts of the temple are being trampled. It is the time that we are living in, and we are looking forward to the end. And in the midst of this time, we also see the two witnesses who are prophesying for that same length of time. So who are the two witnesses? John describes them, and he sees them as the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord on earth. Two olive trees and two lampstands. And if I were to tell you that there's another vision in a prophet that has olive trees and lampstands in it, would you believe me? 
It's true. This is not a brand new vision, not a brand new idea. Again, we go back to Zechariah, this time chapter 4. Let me read for you those first few verses there. This is what Zechariah sees. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who is awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on it, uh, uh, on each of the lamp that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? <laughs> no, you don't? I mean, why would he? I said, no, my Lord. And then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by my might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So in Zechariah, the part of the answer that we get is that, that this symbol, part of this symbol has to do with the Holy Spirit. And so one explanation that I found, and this is just a potential explanation because I am not sure exactly what is meant, but that the olive trees represent this olive oil that is the anointing of the Holy Spirit, that these are witnesses that, that are anointed and called by the Holy Spirit. That was true in Zechariah. There was two anointed ones that came out and to did this work, and it's true in Revelation. Now of the two witnesses, they are anointed by the Holy Spirit. That is one piece of the puzzle. But there's also this idea of the lampstands. And there's only one lampstand in Zechariah and two in Revelation, so there's a slight difference here, even though they're in parallel. Let me ask you, we also said part of the ground rules we've established so far is, is, is we always want to make sure there's room for mystery. We always want to make sure it's an explanation that would make sense to the original hearers of this word. We always want to make sure we look to other parts of Scripture to interpret Revelation. We also want to look to other parts of Revelation to interpret. So I ask you all, here's another good question. Have we had an instance of lampstands yet in Revelation? Has that come up anywhere? Yes. And in Revelation 1, we were actually told what lampstands represent. What did the lampstands represent in Revelation 1? Anyone? The church. The seven lampstands were the seven churches. So we have been told in Revelation, by Revelation itself, lampstand is representation of church. And so I think the best way we can understand this and give Revelation its own voice is to stay consistent and know that the lampstand here also is a symbol for the church. The lampstands refer to the church, to the people of God. And so now at the beginning of the chapter, there's the people of God represented by the temple and also the people of God represented by the two witnesses who are the two lampstands. And you're saying, man, we're reading a revelation. There's a whole lot of symbols in here that refer to the people of God, and you're absolutely correct. Because who was this written to? Who needed this encouragement? Who needed this vision of what is truly true about the witnesses, about what God is doing and what God wants his people to do? It would have been the church. It is you and I. We are the lampstands together. The number two is also important because numbers are always important in Revelation. Why two lampstands here for two witnesses? It's different than Zechariah. Well, two witnesses were needed in order for a testimony to be considered true in the court of law. That's what's spelled out for us in the Old Covenant in Deuteronomy 17.6 and later reiterated in John 8.17. So if you were from that Judeo-Christian perspective, and this was uh, witnesses is, is law court imagery, if you were going and defending a testimony in a court of law, 
You needed two witnesses to have a true testimony. And so here we have two witnesses to have true testimony about Jesus Christ. And that witness, that true witness and testimony is the church. And so could these witnesses be some sort of, of two actual historical figures in the, in, the, in, the, in the future sometime? Perhaps. I would never dismiss that as being a potential of being true. But I think that if we follow all of our ground rules, we can be most certain that this is a good and rich symbol for the church to encourage the church of what they need to be doing during this time of great trouble between the first and second coming of Christ. And what does the church need to do? Well, there are three scenes in the life of these two witnesses that show what this role of the church is. And the first scene is their present life and their message. They are given all this power and this authority to be this prophetic witness of Jesus Christ to the world. And what is a greater evidence that this is referring to the church? Listen to the way that Jesus talks about the church in Matthew 16. So in Revelation, these witnesses are able to to uh, consume people with fire from their mouths. And if, if anyone wants to harm them, they're protected. And they also have the ability then, they have the power to shut the sky, right? And they have the power to turn water into blood. They have protection and power. Now let's read in Matthew 16 and hear the words of Jesus. He says, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The church is protected. Jesus goes on to say, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This is the same wording that we see here in Revelation. The witnesses are the church. The church has been given power. The church has been given protection. This is true of you and I. It was on display during the apostles' ministry as that church was established. It further cements this is happening in the time that we are living in. And yet, These two witnesses have this power and this protection, but only for a certain time. And the second scene of life in the witnesses is that of a humiliating death and defeat. When the witness of the church is complete, it now appears that evil wins. The beast first appears in our story. There's a beast that comes up from the abyss. We're not going to spend a lot of time here because we're going to talk about the beast more. This is just the first introduction we get to this character or this symbol in Revelation. But he is, uh, he's always, whenever he shows up, he is always the one who opposes God, who, who opposes God's people. And he, he goes out, he makes war against the witnesses. He makes war against the saints later on because we are talking about much the same thing. And he conquers them and he kills them. And it looks like evil wins. It looks like the kingdom of the world wins. The witnesses, the church, are conquered. And their slain bodies are now viewed without proper burial for three and a half days. Remember, symbols, not statistics. Three and a half is that symbol for a time of trouble for God's people. But here it's not three and a half years. The time frame is much shorter. It's three and a half days. And at the end of these three and a half days, while the world rejoices and makes merry and even exchanges presents with one another, which I find the most interesting detail in this whole vision, you know, what kind of presents were they swapping? You know, this is like here, housewarming gifts. I don't know what was going on. But they were happy because this, these, these witnesses were making trouble for the world because they were calling the world out for their behavior. Right? And when this time had ended, when this humiliating death and defeat 
seemed like it would be the end, God intervenes. And after those three and a half days, the breath of life, right from God, entered the witnesses. And they lived again. And that third and final scene of life for them was one of resurrection and triumph. I love it. It says here in verse 11, But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and a great fear fell on those who saw them. (laughs) It was a bit of premature celebration. They were not defeated. It was an apparent defeat, but no, they came back to life. God breathed life into them. This comes straight from that image of the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 37, where he sees God breathe life in the dry bones put on flesh. The witnesses, the people of God, the saints will live again. Evil has not triumphed. They have not been overcome. Jesus wins. The people of Jesus win. We have life. And then these witnesses, the people of God, ascend to heaven in a cloud, which is just another way of telling the same story we see Paul talk about in Thessalonians. And then comes judgment, another earthquake, but it's not complete. Again, it's partial because this is not the very end. It is the thing that happens right before the very end. The second woe has passed. The third woe is still to come. So now we have made complete sense of those two visions, right? Anyone confused still? No? You're good? Please don't be too confused. We don't have question and answer today. No, it's okay. And what I'm trying to do here is not say these are the definitive words. I do think that we have put forward a good, solid interpretation that seeks to stay true to our ground rules and let Revelation speak for itself. And the lessons that we learned are just another way of everything else we've learned throughout Revelation. Because these visions are unique, but they're still related to the rest of the book, to the rest of the song, to the rest of the trumpets. And what does it mean for us? That is the question I want to ask as we wrap up our time today. Well, John, in his vision that he was a part of in Revelation 10, was given a word of God to internalize and prophesy to the nations, to all of creation. And this idea, or this call to prophesy, again, is not about telling the future. It's about bringing a message of God, of truth from God to creation, to his people and to all the people who are willing to listen. In the same way, the two witnesses who we understand now to represent the people of God also prophesy, just as John was called to do for that time period of 1,260 days. So the church has now been tasked to prophesy this word of truth from the time between the first and second coming of Christ. Now our task is becoming more clear. Therefore, you and I, the church, the people of God, are rightfully called ambassadors of Christ. Just as as Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 5.20. He says, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. God makes his appeal to the world through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. That is our message. That is the task that we've been given. That is what Revelation 10 and 11 call us to. That we would live our lives out loud saying, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We implore you. So whether you want to use the terms out of Revelation to say prophet or witness, or whether you borrow Paul's term of ambassador, the titles may change, but the role is the same, that the church is the witness of Jesus Christ to the world. You and I are the witnesses of Jesus Christ to the world. And so we are not passive observers of this vision and revelation. We are being distinctly called to action, 
called to do something. We're not supposed to gaze and say, I wonder when these two witnesses are going to show up. We are called to be these witnesses right here and right now to the world around us. And yet, you should have one question, one very important question still in your mind. What is the message that John receives? What is the message that the church is now told to go and prophesy to the world? The solution and the answer to this question is in the wardrobe. Because what were the prophets wearing when they prophesied? What were the two witnesses wearing? They said, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Sackcloth is important. It is the key to understanding what we are talking about. Sackcloth and ashes in, in John's day and in years prior to that were always used for two main reasons. One was to be in mourning and one was to be in repentance. Mourning and repentance. In fact, if you think back to the, the story of the prophet Jonah, who very begrudgingly and eventually went to the city of Nineveh to preach repentance there, and the Ninevites listened to God. They, they heard the message of Jonah. They turned towards him. They repented. And when they repented, they put on sackcloth and ashes. The message that the witnesses have been given the message that the church has been given is one of repentance. God is empowering and protecting the church to call the world to repentance. And here we see again how these visions are related to the trumpets because one of the things that God is doing besides protecting his people and, and delivering his people and answering prayer and staying true to his promises was that God was calling the world to repentance. He was doing it through the partial judgments. But none of those judgments in and of themselves are sufficient for the world to know to turn to God. The other piece of the puzzle, the thing that is so important, is that the people of God would be the voice saying, this is why it is happening. This is what God is trying to do. He's getting your attention, and now I can point you towards him. I can point you towards the lion that conquers. I can point you towards the lamb that was slain. Because in him is victory. In him is life. In him you will find hope. I can point you there. You need to repent. So, in the end, what I'm trying to say is that our message is clear. Repent, for the end is near. We always need to have the right tools for repentance. Um, I brought some of these tools with me, so uh, hopefully it's not too awkward. Just hang on for a second. I'll be right back. I need to get my tools of the message of repentance. Here we go. need some of this here. Almost there. Okay. It's always important to have this too. Here we go. All right. Here we go. This might get, you might want to turn my mic down for this a little bit. Let's see. Repent. Repent, for the end is near. Turn from your ways, you evil sinners. Fire, brimstone, judgment, timelines, death, destruction, hell, and maybe a bit of heaven. But turn. Repent. The end is near. Here we go. And scene. Sorry, okay. <clears throat> I'm glad that worked. 
These are some of the tools of a call to repentance that we've seen. Characterized, but characterized because that's actually been used. And is this the message that we're given from Revelation 10 and 11? Is this the message of repentance that changes the world? Is this the message of repentance that draws people into life-giving relationship with the Lamb that was slain? Well, no. These are not our tools of repentance. Revelation says... What are the witnesses wearing? The witnesses are not just preaching repentance. They're not just calling other people to put on sackcloth. What is the church wearing? Sackcloth and ashes. So this is the truth of our passage. We call the world to repentance through our own repentance. As we repent and follow the Lord, we encourage others to do the same. So we don't bring this prophetic message by being loud or obnoxious or self-righteous or judgmental. We bring this message to the world by being open and honest and transparent and forgiving and repentant people. That's going to change the world. That's the message that we've been given. That's why we are protected and empowered. That's the church we want to be. So if you're here today, Maybe you're still new, you're just checking out Stony Brook, you could have been here for a long time, and you're saying, hey, you know, I've got a lot of stuff to repent for, I'm far from perfect. I say, great, you're going to fit right in. You know, I got to know a lot of you, and I know a lot of you need to wear sackcloth and ashes. Uh Uh-oh, this is just the beginning of Pastor Appreciation Month, I might be in trouble. (laughs) But I say that because I'm a pastor that wears sackcloth on a regular basis, right? I have so much to repent for. I'm not perfect. I can't get up on any soapbox and blare loud at you. I don't expect that. I hope you don't expect it of me. I don't expect you to do that with the world around you. We, we call the world to repentance through our own repentance, through being honest enough about where we fall down, for being humble enough to say, yeah, I messed up, but I'm going to get up and I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep pursuing Jesus, to be loving enough to pull people, brothers and sisters around us that have fallen down, say, keep running the race. Because it's worth it. Because we know the seventh trumpet. We know the God who was and is and is coming. We know how the story ends. And if we want others to join us on this race, if we want other people to pursue God, then we need to be running the life of repentance. This will change the world. And what is biblical repentance? There are three steps that I think we need to be taking in order to truly live this life. First thing, we need to confess our sins. We need to confess our sins not only to God, but you've heard me say it before. I encourage you to find at least one other person in your life that you can confess these things to. Because confessing to someone else, another brother or sister in Christ, will allow these sins to be taken out of the dark and drags them into the light and can begin to be freeing you from them. We need to be people who confess. But repentance and confession, that's only one piece of the puzzle. The second thing we need to do then is once we confess our sins, we need to turn around turn around 180 degrees and leave our past and our sins behind us. There's a very significant and and, and, uh, vision that we're given in Proverbs that talks about uh, not doing this. It says in Proverbs 26, 11, like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Now, I've owned a dog for about one month and I've learned lots about dog ownership. Primarily, I've learned why people choose not to own dogs. (laughs) so far. (laughs) It's been fun too, but yeah. 
And just the other day now, uh, Karen, my wife, and, and, and Silas, they're out in Phoenix, and so I'm hanging out with our older boys and looking after this dog fairly full-time. And the other day, she, for the first time, she puked. And I thought it was pretty gross. Now, she had, the, she had the, the good nature to do this outside, and I was really appreciative of that. But then as soon as she puked, she became utterly and completely obsessed with returning to the mess that she had made. And I had brought her outside to try to do some other messy things. And I, I couldn't, we couldn't stay out there because she, she couldn't think of anything else. It was like she was seeing red, single-mindedly obsessed with returning to that spot. In fact, I was trying to drag her over on her leash somewhere else. And she was making herself gag on her collar. She was pulling so hard. I had to bring her inside to make sure she didn't hurt herself. I'm like, why in the world? I'm like, now I get why Solomon would have chosen those words in the proverb. It makes sense to me. In church, if I'm being honest with some of the pattern of sin in my life, I far too often act like my dog. I far too often become obsessed with turning around and returning to the mess that I made the first time. And repentance calls us to do something else. It calls us to a different life. It says, turn around, turn your back. Do not be a fool. Instead, live a life of repentance. And then there's a third and final step. Once we've turned our back on our sin, we need to actively pursue the things of God. We need to seek after Jesus. We need to make him the center. We need to boast in Christ alone. We need to run towards him. The best way to avoid doing something bad is to be active in pursuing what is good and what is righteous. I've never had to try to quit smoking. I've talked to someone else who has, and he said quitting smoking is easy. I've done it hundreds of times. There's all sorts of different strategies for trying to break that addiction. But one of the things that smokers know is that if they are to try to break this habit, they need to do something else to keep their mouth busy so they'll chew gum. They need to do something else to keep their hands busy so they'll even get fidget spinners or stress balls. Why? Because if we just sit there and say, don't do it, don't do it, don't sin, don't do it, we're going to turn back around. We need to keep ourselves busy, preoccupied, focused on things that are above. That's the life of repentance. That is what changes the world. And when we live as people who confess and who turn away from sin and who pursue Jesus, we live in the truth of Revelation 10 and 11. We are doing what God has asked us to do until he comes again. So I'm going to invite the music team back up. I'm going to leave you with one final thought. All of this, we've, we've covered a lot of ground. Thank you for staying with me. All of this witnessing and the call of repentance, the changing of the world, is possible only by the power of Jesus Christ. Only by the power of Christ. So there's one more connection to make. Remember those three scenes of life that were described for these two witnesses? Remember how they had empowered and protected ministry and a humiliating death and defeat and then a resurrection after three days and an ascension into heaven? Have you heard that story before? Has anyone else heard that story? In all these things, the people of God follow Jesus Christ. He has been there before. He is the first fruits. The church is for him and by him, and we live to him, and he is coming again, and he is empowering his people. Everything we do, everything we do, we follow Jesus and point people to him. And that is the way that he will use us to change the world. Let's pray once more. God, we are, are grateful, truly grateful, to be able to gather together today as your church. And to be encouraged, not just what you have done for us, but what you have called us to do. So God, may we be a people who live a life of repentance. First and foremost, so we can just get right with you. So that we can be honest with, and confess our sins to you. That, that we can lean on the reconciliation that we have 
through Jesus with you. And God, I pray, though, that this life of repentance that we seek to live would not be kept to ourselves, but that you would use it for your good and perfect will to draw people to yourself, to have them repent as well. And so on that day, when you come again, and there is a multitude of people, we can look into our left and to our right, and we can see those that we love and those that have been impacted by the way that we were able to live our lives. We praise you and follow you in all things. Amen. Amen.